0: Morning folks, good to see you and we're going to be turning to Philippians 3 this morning, uh, it's in the New Testament for those of you who haven't been there recently the title for the uh, sermon this morning is um, Living the Life, which is a common phrase that a lot of people use today, it's generally used by people who are fairly self-indulgent, they're uh, they're wealthy they're doing what they want to do, often retired people are like that uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, they're people who are just really living for themselves and indulging themselves. And the phrase, when it's used, is what I think uh, living the life really uh, means. You know, they're ticking off their bucket list and everything else, and that's promoted a lot within our culture today. <clears throat> but uh, living the life has an exclamation mark in this sermon, and I'm hoping that you'll be exclamated enough to feel encouraged and strengthened in the uh, days ahead for you. Philippians 3, 8 to 16, which I'm going to read now, is really an expression of what it means to be a Christian, according to the Apostle Paul. And in particular, um, we will find as we go through, one of the purposes or the goals that Paul had for his life. We all need to have some sense of self-worth and some some sense of purpose. Even God... Has purpose. Even God needs purpose. Turn over to Romans 8 for a moment. So you're heading left. If you're using a Bible. If you're using anything else. You need to get a Bible. We read in our chapter 8 verse 28 the following. Paul in this wonderful psalm he says. Uh, a a, a passage he says and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good we've just had a testimony of that for those who are called according to his purpose not our own purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is the purpose that God has? It is that you and I would be conformed to the image of his son. You and I, or those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him. The purpose that God has is that he will change us to become increasingly like His son, Jesus. How many of you know that your temperament doesn't get changed when you convert? You're still the same person. There are still the same rough edges. There are still the same issues that you had beforehand. But once you become a Christian, those issues can be dealt with in a different way than what you had been doing prior to conversion. We can rely more on the help of God and this grace of God to deal with the issues of our lives. But our, and our temperament, God begins to work on. You can become actually a nicer person. Did you hear that, Peter? You can become a nicer person as God begins to change who we are in terms of our temperament. In terms of the way we react, not so much in the natural, but the way we start to react through God in our lives. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later on. So let's look at what Paul's purpose is. Remembering that he's talking here about what it means to be righteous. So. Tim. You are believe in Christ, don't you? You're a righteous man, aren't you? You are a righteous man. Elaine, you believe in Christ, don't you? You're a righteous woman. That's right. You see, what happens when we become Christians, when we believe, is that even though we're still aware of our own sin and our own unrighteousness, What happens is because of the cross, we step from one state into another state. We step out of the state of sin and unrighteousness into a state of being right with God. It doesn't mean we still don't feel the same issues. It doesn't mean that we still aren't aware of our own unworthiness. But what has happened is God has made us worthy through Jesus. And so when he looks at us, even though we might have difficulty saying this ourselves, when he looks at us, he sees a righteous person because of Jesus. Not because of what we've done, but because we trust in him. And so he looks at someone who doesn't need to be weighed down or guilty because of the weight or the state of sin that is so prevalent in the world. the Bible calls the fallenness of the world but you and I and anyone who believes in Jesus and calls on his name when we look in the mirror if we really understand what has happened to us when we gave our life to the Lord Jesus Christ we look and we can say you know despite the fact you're not perfect see I didn't say you were perfect Despite, as you look in the mirror, you're not a perfect man or woman, but you are a righteous person in the eyes of God. Now, to be able to affirm that is one of the things about Christian life. And Paul, in this passage, in the context, has been talking about the fact that he tried so hard under the law to be righteous and he couldn't get his act together enough. No one can that now he considers that way of doing things, making the effort in our own strength. The word he uses is refuge, refuse or garbage. The actual Greek word means something like cow dung or manure, the stuff that you'd throw into the garbage dump. He says, trying to do things in my own strength by obeying the law and everything else to me That is rubbish. The only thing that works is faith in Jesus Christ. So that's a context. So let's read from verse 8, a few verses. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What is the thing that's uh, (coughs) most worthwhile in life? Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Nothing else will ever surpass that. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What's Paul's goal? There it is. That he may know Christ. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See? God's done his work. Now we can do ours. Making our salvation assured. Making what God has offered us and what we've accepted, making it our own in life. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. To what we have attained. I want to ask you a question. If you had to nominate who you thought was the person, male or female, who had made the greatest contribution to Australian society as a Christian. Who would you choose? Now, I've had time to think about this, so I'll tell you who I would nominate. Recently Judy and I were out at uh, Broken Hill a couple of weeks ago, and we went to the Royal Flying Doctor Service, And uh, and as a part of that, we looked at the whole thing and Uh, you know the pedal radio machine and all that sort of stuff and I can remember as a kid hearing about the founder of the Royal Flying Doctor service but uh, I bought a biography of his uh, there and I would suggest to you that the Reverend John Flynn is a man who made perhaps the greatest contribution to Australian society that any Christian has made by establishing um, a network of hospitals, a network of medical staff, particularly nursing staff, um, in the outback areas of Australia, stretching right across Australia, that to, still to this day uh, is an amazing organisation. Two thirds funded by government, one third by charitable donation. The only charity in Australia that has the na- the the verb the sorry that has the term royal in front of it granted by the Queen the letter of which is in the Broken Hill uh, Center you know his mother in growing up died young in his life and it said uh, of him that his father was not what you would call a warm and a loving man but in the biography that I've been reading just let me Read to you a description of what his father instilled within him and his sister. His sister was a main avenue of funds into the establishing of the Royal Flying Doctor Service towards the beginning of the last century. She was very good in in what she did in terms of public, publicity and writing and so on. <coughs> Thomas Flynn, who was John Flynn's father, <coughs> loved his wife deeply. He never remarried when she died young. And as the years went past, he became, as a man, increasingly reclusive, retreating into books and studies. We'd have no one here like that, of course. (laughs) Materially speaking, he could not give his children a great deal. But he imparted his Christian faith and its vision of life and eternity. The virtues of honesty, hard work and service were also drilled into the young family John Flynn was brought up not by a man who was touchy-feely not by a man who really knew how to express his love but he was brought up by a man who did know how to impart his Christian faith and his vision of life and eternity to his son and his daughter you know recently I've been listening to some of the things happening uh, in the tennis world. And I listen to people like Bernard Tomick and Nick Kyrgios uh, speaking about themselves and about life. And it's clear to me as I look at their particular situation that they've not been raised by a father or a mother who have a sense, one of Christian faith, but two, a sense of vision and life a sense of purpose in life, a sense of self-worth in life. They lack identity, they lack vision, and they lack purpose. And they lack the ability to look beyond themselves to a sense of purpose in life. And you know, in our culture today, many people are like that. Even within the church, it can be the same, that we live in an era and an age where people are so self-indulgent or self-focused that they lack a notion of having a purpose for something else or for someone else than just themselves. Even God needs a purpose. So if he does, surely we do as well. His purpose is to conform us to his image. And so what is our purpose? It is to grab hold of that conforming that we might be like Jesus ourselves and give our lives to the purposes of God rather than to the purposes purposes of society or anything that's self-indulgent and that just focuses on ourselves. Paul understood the need for purpose. Verse 10, that I may know him. That I may know him. Let me ask you another question. What is the difference between a religious and a righteous person? This is the Peter Thompson version. So you can speak to me afterwards if you feel you need to correct me. The cue will start over here. (laughs) What is the difference between a religious and a righteous person? And I think that is a major question we need to ask ourselves, particularly if we feel we're going through the motions in life. Go to church, do the right thing, and hopefully it'll all work out okay. That's a religious mindset. The former, the religious person, knows about God and practices rituals towards God aimed at earning God's approval without having any personal relationship or encounter with God. The latter, in other words, the righteous person, has and pursues a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The religious person relies on their own efforts. The righteous person trusts and relies on God. That's my take on it. In today's passage, Paul speaks of the value of the knowledge of Christ. And in verse 10, he defines more closely what he means. The word that he uses to know in that Uh, that verse to know Christ that's his goal (coughs) excuse me is a Greek verb a Greek word (coughs) gnosken and it nearly always in each instance that it's used in the New Testament indicates personal knowledge personal knowledge Paul nodded uh, Paul Edstein that is resident Greek scholar so that means I must have got that one right near enough so it isn't simply intellectual knowledge it isn't simply the knowledge of certain facts or even principles rather it is the personal experience of knowing and meeting with another person which we are doing today we're meeting personally together with the Lord Jesus Christ it's the same word that is used in the Septuagint the Greek (coughs) translation of the version of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 it's a Greek word that's used to describe the sexual intercourse that Adam and Eve engaged in when Adam knew Eve in their relationship sexual intercourse is the most intimate knowledge that a man or a woman May have with one another. It means a deep intimate closeness. And Paul in this passage in this verse is saying. That his aim is not to know about Christ and what he's done. But it's to personally know him. In his own life. And then Paul outlines what that means for him. Means, Means firstly. To know the power of Christ's resurrection. What does that mean? Well, it means this. To not simply, the resurrection is not simply an historical event. It's not simply something that Jesus experienced that we can hear about. But rather, the power of Christ's resurrection is a dynamic power that operates within a Christian's life. Today And Paul's saying, I want to know that dynamic power. The resurrection of Christ is for you and me as we read about it, as we experience him in our lives. Sometimes recognizing it's him and sometimes not. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that this life is worth living. And that the physical body is sacred in the eyes of God. It's a guarantee for us that death isn't the end of life. And that there is a world beyond. And it's a guarantee that nothing in life or death can separate us from him when we have trust and faith in who he is. So Paul says, I want to know that. I want to know that life, that sacredness, that help, that power that makes it possible even in the darkest hour. That power that reaches out its hand and pulls us up when we see the wind and the waves and we start to feel uncertain about things. But he says it's something else as well. To know Christ is not just to know the power of God, but it's to know, according to verse 10, the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may share his sufferings. Now, this is not the moment you switch off. You know, to suffer for the faith is a privilege. For it means that we share in the very work of Christ. Oh, it's Canberra's such a hard place to be a Christian in. You don't know what my workplace is like. They're so hostile to Christian things. I can't say anything without people berating me and having a go at me. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. At least you're getting a reaction. Praise the Lord. That's the very thing that you and I are called to do and to be to share the suffering of Christ it's not a whip but it's a form of suffering the lash of the tongue some of you of course are sitting there with anticipation thinking I wonder if the sauna stuff is still happening (laughs) some of you are sitting there thinking I pray to God that he doesn't have a sauna illustration My realm or arena of evangelism has moved from the sauna, (laughs) hallelujah, to the tennis court. (laughs) And I find it interesting that a group of people that I've started playing tennis with, um, uh, or a group of men, the very first day that I went to be introduced, they knew that I was coming the very first day I went. I there was a particular guy who came late. Uh, he is a very uh, effusive, loud, foul-mouthed sort of guy. I've discovered. He came and uh, I was introduced to him, and, and he's walking up to us. And they say, "This is Peter, and uh, he's going to be playing with us." And his introduction in front of everyone on my first day was this. Oh, I know who he is. I've heard all about him at the gym. You know, he's a reverend. We're not going to be able to swear here anymore at all. (laughs) That was the introduction. I just shook his hand and thought, you... (laughs) And over time, so this is four or five months worth, over time as we've played, uh, I've seen him hurl his racket against the wall. I've seen him yell and... A whole stack of other things and uh, the other day uh, in the game itself was interesting Uh, he hit a shot into the net and he hurled his racket down and he used the Lord's name in vain which he does quite a lot and I've made no comment about it um, for a long time and uh, he did that and and uh, swore and uh, and I looked at him in front of everyone else and I said there's not a lot of point praying after you've played the point. <laughs> to which everyone laughed. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, all right, all right. And, wa- and walked off. Now, the lash of the tongue is a sharing in suffering. But on that very same day, uh, last week, in a break, this gentleman, start, who's a very successful businessman, started talking about how he's had a really bad back and how he um, had been for some treatment. I won't say what the treatment was, but he'd gone for this treatment, and uh, and um, it hadn't been good, and he talked to a couple of other people about it and, and so on. And, and I looked at him, and uh, I said, um, he said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I'm glad you asked. And, and I, said, I said to him straight off, I said, so do you like all the spiritual stuff that accompanies that sort of treatment? And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? They didn't say anything about anything spiritual. I said, oh, I didn't think they would. So that's a new age healing technique. It actually doesn't heal. You might feel a bit better physically, but you'll find out that you feel depressed and things start going not well for you. I said, and probably that person's just channeling demons to you as they're massaging your back and manipulating all those other things and he looked at me the others looked at me (laughs) and he looked at me and he said I have felt so bad since yesterday when I had that treatment and he said what would you do and I said well I'll tell you after we finish the game and he said but I I can only play this next set then then I've got to go. I said it's all right. only take me two or three minutes but I'll, I'll tell you what I would do and so we finished the set he came immediately over Walked up to me and said, can we come over here to one side and you tell me what you would do? I said, yes. Went over to one side and he said, what would you do? I said, I'd l- if I was you, you should let me pray for you. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, really? I said, yes, I've seen a lot of healings over the years. Jesus still heals today. And uh, I'd be happy to lead you. In fact, I'll lead you in a prayer. I'll tell you what the prayer is at first. And if you can't pray this prayer, that's okay. Um, and if you don't want to do this, that's okay. But if you do and you feel that you can, then I'd like, to, like you to pray a prayer with me. And he said, what's a prayer? So I told him, this healing is mine because of what Jesus has done. I receive my healing now in the name of Jesus Christ. It's on the tennis court. The other guys, hey, hey yeah, that's right. I was crawling up on him. God was. And he looked at me, said, I can pray that. I said, good. Would you let me lay my hands on your shoulder and pray for you? Before we pray. It. Yes. So I put my hand on his shoulder. And blessed him. With the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's healing presence. And then I said. This is the prayer. And I let him. He said the whole thing. Looked at me and I said. That's done. Let's see what happens in the next week. So you're all praying for him now. Right. <laughs> for his back and stuff like that. And uh, he thanked me. And left. You never know what's going to happen and see that was the thing about John Flynn he saw the need in the outback he felt drawn to the people he felt drawn to their issues it was said of him that he within an hour of meeting with people could sum up exactly what their needs were and how they could be helped had a wonderful ability to assess what would help a person no wonder God used him so much To help so many people. All people. Male or female. Have a need. For God. And I'm praying. That this guy. gets surprised. As to what God can do. With another group I play tennis with. There's already been three healings in that group. Two people. Three healings. Chronic tennis elbow, chronic tennis shoulder, and chronic knee. You see, there's a purpose for all of us available to actually reach out and to witness to the presence and the reality of God and that God is a good God who wants the best for all. But in order to do that, there are times where we share in the fellowship of his suffering, even if it's only verbal. And there may well be a time in our lives, like many other people in the world, where we actually are are persecuted even for our faith. To suffer for the faith is a privilege, for it means that we share in the very work of Christ. And the third thing uh, Paul thinks uh, is involved in what it means to know Christ is this. We know Christ by learning to die to ourselves, by being concerned with God's concerns and purposes more than we are with our own concerns and our own needs. And God's concern and purpose is this, is namely that people might find peace in life. With God and with one another. That's the Christian message. This is how you find peace in life with God and with one another by trusting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That when He died on the cross, the power of sin to undermine and to cause us to fall was broken once and for all. And we can live constructively for the purpose that God calls us to live we can live the life that God has for us rather than what the world says is living another way of putting it is that people might discover that their worth can only be found in God's love for them not in what they can achieve in their own strength to know Christ is not to be skilled in any theoretical or theological knowledge although those things aren't bad in themselves it is to know him personally with such closeness that in the end we are as united with him as we are with those who we love here on earth and that as we share their experiences we also share his experience with them. People should never have a doubt as to whether or not we're Christian. I'm going to conclude with the testimony and we're going to actually have communion by coming and kneeling at the front. And parents can go and get their kids uh, when we get to that. This is one of those conclusions that might take some time. It was a joke. Lighten up a bit. Tough crowd here today, I tell you. Not really. I'm going to read a couple of instances out of this book about one particular man. His uh, his name was um, Alf Davis. The Reverend John Flynn was at a place called Lee Creek. And he was telling stories of outback rescues, uh, of a man, for example, who was found by a drover up to his waist in, in sand from a sandstorm, uh, flailing his arms around wildly, as if he's swimming, trying to save himself from drowning. This man, for two weeks, had had nothing to eat in the outback uh, with, uh, to drink. Uh, in the heat, and he'd become delusional, he'd gone past the point of being actually thirsty, he thought and imagined that being in the sand he was in the, in the ocean, and he was in the water, and he was trying to swim and he'd stripped himself naked and he was just in this sand, and this driver happened to be driving past and saw the sand in the arms and went over to see what was wrong with him and he was saved And so John Flynn was using that at one of the first sermons he preached in the outback at Lee Creek. He was preaching in a house and he used that sermon as an illustration of our need for Christ to come. We're in the sandstorm, thirsty and we're drowning, we're dying. And Christ is the only one that can help us like this drover. And so he was saying this, and Alf Davis was a young man in his late 20s, and he was there, Uh, he was a a crackpot, he was an opium opium, uh, addict. He was also a drunk, and uh, he wasn't a a very nice person. And so he was there, um, (coughs) listening to the sermon. the whole time, through the sermon, he's making comments from the back, ridiculing what was being said, interrupting, mumbling, and when the service finished, he stormed out. John Flynn didn't respond or react to him at all. He rather just continued inwardly to pray for this man and his salvation and to continue to focus on the gospel message that he was bringing. Six months later, he's there again. And six months later, Al Davis is there again. And so he starts to preach and same sort of thing is happening. But as he preaches, increasingly, Alf Davis quietens and starts to listen. At the close of the service, so this book says, a subdued Alf Davis indicated to Flynn that he would like to talk with him privately. He told of a harrowing life of bad women, heavy drinking, and opium addiction. He had escaped from trouble and family censure in Brisbane by running away to the center of Australia only to find that he couldn't escape from the guilt that he felt. When he learned that his mother lay dying, he had been too ashamed to return to see her. Even when she died, he wouldn't return, hoping that his family would presume him dead also. All of this is his confession to the Reverend John Flynn. Many times he had tried to break free from his addictions and start a new life, but found them more powerful than his willpower. Amen to that. The Christ I served, the Reverend Flynn reassured him, is more powerful than your sins and problems and can rescue you from them. Do you believe that? Asked Alf Davis. I'm sure of it, responded the Reverend John Flynn. I wouldn't be here otherwise. Would you like to pray and ask him to forgive your sins. And come into, li- into your life and rescue you. Yes please was the response. And so Flynn prayed for him. And Davis then said his own faltering prayer. Aloud. And the look of peace on Davis's face. When they parted the next day. Was encouraging. Because the Reverend Flynn had seen conversions before. Based on emotions. That had not lasted. And didn't have a lot of time for the emotive conversion. However. However. He had seen lives totally transformed by deep spiritual changes. And that's what he was hoping for this man. Sometime later, so I'm turning to another page. Sometime later, during a promotional tour of Brisbane that he was doing, trying to raise funds for the Flying Doctor Service, Royal Flying Doctor Service. Flynn received a letter from Alf Davis, the opium addict. He had first helped at Lee Creek. he had often wondered whether the man's conversion had been real and the changes in his lifestyle permanent because he had had no further contact with him. So he read part of the letter. It said this. I fought my battles out myself for years, thinking that I had sufficient strength in my failed body To conquer myself. But how soon I found out how weak I was. Thank God I can say today (coughs) that I am free. My sins are things of the past. Opium's power over me is dead. With an exclamation mark. How did I do it? Well, it's easy to answer, Alf Davis wrote. I came to realize that there was only one, capital O, who could help me. I found that one, capital O. And by prayer and trust, he conquered and I won. I will see my brothers and sisters again. I'll look them in the face and shake their hands, knowing that I can do so as an honorable man. That's what God does. He restores your sense of worth. And honor. That's what why Christ came. To restore that to anyone. Who would trust him. And believe in him. Davis concluded. By asking Flynn to send him a Bible. Which he did. And a few months later. Came a letter of thanks from Davis. Saying how valuable he was finding the Bible. And he ended up in this subsequent thank you note saying this. And I love this. And this is what we're going to end with. Here I am at 33. Just beginning to live. The life my father above sent me on earth. Sorry, just beginning to live just beginning to find the true joy of life the life my father above sent me on earth to live God has sent us to live a life that he's determined that he wants us to live and that life is a blessing not to us to ourselves but to others it's a life where you can feel right with God, You can look yourself in the mirror and say, I know I have problems, I know I'm not perfect, but there's a righteousness that's functioning in my life because of Christ. I'm at peace with life and with God and with myself because of Jesus. Think about it for a moment. The life. I was sent to live. What a great insight. A life that trusts in Jesus. As Paul says in our passage. And seeks to know him. I want to ask you a question. And I'm finishing with this. Are you living the life. That God sent you to live with Him? It's a good question, isn't it?